I really appreciated Pastor Gary's message last week. I hope you did too. I'm sure you did. I loved how he handled one of my favorite passages of scripture. I came across 2 Kings chapter 6 sometime in high school. Yes, I was one of those nerds. I was reading a little bit of Bible in high school and stuff. So if you're my fellow high school nerds, way to go. It can stick with you, trust me. I know you read it over and over and you're like, this, this isn't sticking. Sometimes it does. The story of Elisha with his apprentice really stood out to me. And I can't remember the circumstances in my life. I don't know why it was so important to me, but it was very powerful. And I've remembered it every, ever since. When Gary said he was teaching out of Second Kings 6, I got to sound like a Bible expert. I said, you mean Elisha and his servant? He kind of looked like, how would you know where that's located? Because he picked the one thing I knew where it was located. And he gave me the opportunity. It was an easy, it was a slow pitch, as I like to say. I could knock that one out of the park. But I love the way that the story was relatable for us because often what will calm our worries and anxieties is seeing what God is really at work doing. And Elisha's call was for God to open the eyes of his servant because they were surrounded by their enemy. And the servant was panicking and, and Elisha just said, Lord, give him the same eyes I have. Help him to see what's really going on around us, like in the confidence that I have. And his eyes were open. He saw the angel armies surrounding their enemy. And then it was all easy to, to cope with from there. And so Pastor Gary's point, one of the one of the many points was that we can be calmed in our anxiety. We can have a greater trust in the Lord, knowing that he is doing things in realms that we can't see. And And, and I know no matter how much I read that story in high school, I was like, Lord, show me, Lord, show me, Lord, show me. And it didn't happen. I didn't see a host of angel armies around me, but my confidence in knowing that the word of God is true and that those armies are there. And many of you can attest that you've experienced their presence in your life. And so it begins to get us to a different place where the whole don't worry, be happy, just flip a switch and stop worrying about your troubles. That encouragement or that counsel starts falling flat because we need to find our place. We need to find our confidence and our hope in something much more substantial than just willpower. Something more concrete than just our own ability to muster up the strength to just stop freaking out. It never seems to really go that way. We are going to, and please hear me, faithful Christians who are going to think this is going to sound like heresy. We are going to worry in life. Now, I'm going to make the case that worry is a sin. But the reality is, is that this side of eternity, we are going to be plagued with at least the temptation and often the, the mistake of worry and anxiety and fear. But we do have the opportunity to handle worry in at least a couple of ways. And, and these are kind of boiling it down, but we can handle it faithfully. So as we step out in faith, our worry starts to reduce. The longer we do this, the more that we've learned from our mistakes, the learn that the more that we've seen that our worrying doesn't really change things. Hopefully that starts to reduce in our life so that a faithful handling of our temptation to worry and be anxious and not trust in God, we'll start to minimize a little bit over time. We can also handle it humbly. The quicker you and I come to acknowledging, yes, this is, it's like in the hymn that we sing on come thou fount prone to wander. Lord, I feel it just expressing that Lord, I'm so tempted to walk away from you. Imagine if we start saying, you know what? Some of us more than others, but Lord, I do have a tendency to bite my nails a lot. I'm a little worked up. I'm a little wrapped around the axle. I'm nervous about things or 
Maybe I play it. This is kind of my world is I was often told that I kind of don't react to things going on around me. You know, oh, there's someone lying on the floor bleeding. So we're going to get a phone. We're going to deal with this. And the inside, I'm like, how do we do this? What do we do? What are we supposed to do? How do we help that person? I don't know how to do that. But on the outside, whatever. So there's those of us that need to admit more humbly, I'm prone to worry as well. It will be a constant struggle for us to try to solve tomorrow's problems today. And Paul shares with us in our letter, uh, in our text in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul shares a moment of vulnerability again. He already did in chapter 1. This is Paul's normal course of life. He's willing to admit, even having it in writing, where his weaknesses are. In fact, that is the theme of our letter. As we study this is that Christ is made perfect in Paul's weakness. And so Paul is sharing another moment of vulnerability regarding his own worry. But instead of going to an easy kind of, and this is how I got over my worry. And this is how I flipped the switch. And now I don't worry anymore. Paul takes a really strange and surprising turn. Now, just a little bit of background here. As we come into beginning in verse 12, we're just going to handle about five verses this morning. Um, so as we come into verse 12, what's going on here is that Paul had sent his, his, uh, coworker, his, his partner in, in gospel ministry, Titus to Corinth. He says, I just had a really terrible experience with those people. I have a few things I want to say to those people and you, my friend, get to deliver it. So have fun. Enjoy that. So Titus says, I, I captain takes the letter, goes across the pond and goes and sees uh, the folks in Corinth. He tells uh, Titus before he leaves, he says, by the way, go deliver that. And we're going to meet in Troas, which is all very important location stuff for you, right? You're like, you know, this means a lot to me. He goes over there. Paul goes up here. He says, let's meet up over here. And keep in mind, no Uber, no plane tickets, no any of those things. So these plans have to be concrete. We have to know a general time of the year. We're going to meet up there. Our expectations are set. So Titus goes and does that verse 12. We're going to jump right into our text here. Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul is giving us some very subtle language here. He's not really making it so obvious in the English. It would be like, oh, I thought you said he was worried and panicked. It sounds pretty calm as he's explaining that. I had a little ickiness inside, so I made different plans and went. That's how it almost reads when we see it in the English. Paul is saying that even though a door was open for me in the Lord, which is a phrase he used for the amazing work that was going on in the city of Ephesus. So all these amazing things are happening as the church is being built and Paul reduces it to a door was open to me in the Lord so that we can also gather the same amazing work fulfilling work, responsive work. People are biting into the gospel and they're saying, we're going to build a church here. And Paul's leadership is thriving and taking off. It's all happening in Troas, just like it did in Ephesus. And Paul says, even though I was experiencing this open door, I couldn't calm down. It wasn't enough to distract me because I didn't know where my brother was. He was supposed to be here already. Paul had some very legitimate reasons to worry and his reasons were so legitimate that even the great and mighty apostle Paul was so distracted that even the fulfillment of his life calling 
was not enough to keep his head in mind off of what was going wrong or what could have been going wrong with Titus or Corinth. Why isn't he here already? Now, you and I can relate to this a smidge, right? You send a text to somebody and they don't get back to you for 20 minutes. You're like, what happened to them? They fall off the earth. What's going on? And that's like, maybe 20 minutes is even funny. You're going to like, I get that way if I don't hear right back. If I don't see some of you have texting or messaging where you can see the people typing with the dots going on. And if they're not doing it right away, you're kind of, you blowing me off. What are we fighting already? What's going on? So imagine not hearing from Titus for such a long time. Paul's list of concerns started growing. Is Titus, my brother, safe? He might have been carrying a collection back for the poor. Did the money that he was carrying make him more vulnerable to attack? Is he even alive? Did things go really terrible with the church while he was there? He had to, de- he had to deliver a pretty nasty, harsh letter. Maybe they strung him up and they said, we're not dealing with this guy anymore either. All of those things start to play in our mind and the mighty, disciplined, amazing Paul was still prone to those same ponderings, fears, and frustrations. But Paul didn't let his worries slow down his work. This is the flip side to this. He admits he was distracted, but the work continued. And there is an issue going on in at least 2019 and earlier, right? Where we are literally plagued by our anxiety to where we cannot function. It shuts us down. It gives us every excuse in the book because I'm nervous, I'm afraid, or I've even got legitimate fears and concerns and the work stops. So just by way of side note, please be encouraged of the fact that the work can continue. In fact, it does a lot for healing the process if we do remain productive. So let that sink in. If those of you that are kind of wrapped up tight with anxiety and you have a friend, someone faithful speaking to you to try to get you out of bed, get you off the couch and move to listen to their advice because it's helpful. But it was making it harder for him to do the work. He admits that his spirit was not at rest. So eventually he moves on to Macedonia and they eventually meet in Macedonia. Titus is heard from again. Paul's spirit is relieved. But we don't know this until chapter seven. What I'm trying to get us to see is how strange the answer to Paul's anxiety is. You and I would have said he showed up. Everything's cool. I relaxed. But we don't know this until chapter seven, where he says in verse five, he says, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. We, we were fighting without the normal discourse of being an apostle in that day and age was always this kind of someone's coming to attack me. I got to be ready building a ministry, a church, Satan's attacking all that's going on normally. But he says, and here's the vulnerability, the great apostle Paul says, and fear within Remember what he said to us in chapter one about the God of all comfort going through great suffering leads to great comfort. Verse six, he says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, the Corinthian church, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So in chapter 7, Paul finally gets around to saying, look, one of the great comforts I had was that the letter worked, that we're back on the same team again, that you are showing true fruits of repentance. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago when we were talking about forgiveness. 
We don't hear this relatable human relief until much further down the road. So what we're going to get back to in our text is how Paul turns on a dime, basically. Takes like a 90 degree and just goes, okay, I know you're expecting me to report the good news is what calmed me down, but that wasn't it. So he continues in verse 14. We're just going to bite a smidge off of verse 14 for a second. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. Ah, so here we go. The language is triumphant. It's victorious. So Paul is getting to this thing where he's going. So because I could stand back on my own two feet, God helped me to reconstitute myself, helped me to, to be the best version of me. So therefore I got over my worries, my fears, anxiety. I stopped biting my nails so much. Triumphal procession. We love the sound of that. But what he's bringing to mind for his reader is a Roman victory parade where generals, conquering generals, were being led by a, a four-horse chariot and, and other victorious soldiers that were moving alongside of that general in celebration that they had just won in the battle and they're parading all of their, capt- their, uh, their, their prisoners before the citizenry that all the people could applaud. We won. We're not afraid anymore. We were, we were successful in battle. The general looks amazing because his plan worked. Okay, so Paul is saying then, I speculate at first, that maybe he's one of the soldiers that gets to ride in on the horse because Jesus is conquering, his conquering general is leading the, the army and we get to come in and say, look at all the bad guys we captured. Is this is where Paul's going? Because that's how we get over our anxiety is we get better position in life. We're reminded of our power and our authority makes us feel good. So did Paul mean that he was being led as a victorious soldier? And I, and I know that the modern interpretation of that would say yes. I want to just camp on a point here for a second because it's creeping up left and right. I can't hear music these days without it jumping out at me. I can't read books or see it in conferences and things without it just really troubling my spirit to use Paul's phrase. There is a destiny slash dream theology that's going strong in gangbusters that leaves the dream or the destiny as a blank line that you and I can fulfill or that you and I can define. So we have a God in this teaching. We have a God that that loves you enough, that is powerful enough to give you your dream. And we say, well, okay, well, we've been hearing this forever out of, you know, we've been taught well here at Faith about um, the prosperity gospel and things. But it isn't just showing up in material wealth. Now it's a better sense of, of inner uh, strength because now we've got a society that's just racked with anxiety and fears and intimidation by the world. And now we don't have to give in to that anymore because God can give you your dream. He is going to fulfill your destiny. Now, do I believe that God can give his children a dream? Absolutely. Do I believe that God can fulfill a destiny in his children's lives? Yes. The, the, the sticking point in all of this is the tiny little three-letter word, you. The more we emphasize your dream and your destiny and don't define what it is for every child of God, which is to bring glory to him, we run a very dangerous racket of fulfilling people and what they want to hear. You know, celebrities, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of celebrities that are out there on Instagram boasting they're going to church on Sunday mornings now. 
you know, the Britney Spears of the world and some other people and stuff like that. There's, there's pop stars, the Justin Bieber's of the world and all this kind of stuff. They're, they're flocking to the church. Even churches that, that we sing some of their music and all that sort of stuff. Why is that? Because what they're hearing there is that God is powerful enough to fulfill your dream. Well, who wouldn't want to sit around and listen to that? You don't have to abandon anything. You don't have to give up an old life. You don't have to, all you have to do is realize what's next. It's very attractive. It's very dangerous and deadly as well. See, this wouldn't be consistent with where, where Paul's brought us thus far. If we go back to chapter one and verse nine, he says, indeed, we felt, remember when he was being crushed down by some life threatening situation, he said, we received, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So, so Paul isn't going to turn and say, so all along, we felt like we were being knocked down, being reminded that there's no strength left within us, that all the strength we have is by Christ. And now all of a sudden I'm one of the conquering soldiers who gets to ride in on horseback in the parade. What Paul was getting across to us, this is the first point, if you're following along with notes, is that we can join Jesus' parade. So Jesus being the general on the chariot. But Paul saw himself as the conquered subject. Let's, Let's press this a little bit uglier. Paul saw himself as the humiliated trophy being dragged in the procession. Now, we know God's full of grace. We know that Jesus is is the rescuer. We've talked about all of these things, but Paul is seeing his position as something lower than deserving of the citizens' applause. And everybody's saying, you did it, Paul. You can be the best version of you. Paul, you can realize your dreams. Paul's saying, I've had a life of that. It's got me nowhere. I would rather be in the procession as his captive than to be riding as one of his soldiers. One gentleman put this in a, in a thesis that he was writing on this passage. I think he did a great job with it. He said, as the enemy of God's people, God had conquered Paul at his conversion call on the road to Damascus. It was now leading him as a slave, which was Paul's favorite term for himself. He was leading him as a slave to death in Christ in order that Paul might display or reveal the majesty, power, and glory of God, his conqueror. We are more than conquerors. We hear things like that and we're like, yes, that's amazing. We can join in the conquering, but have we been conquered ourselves? Just do a little imagination with me and just answer the question quietly to yourself. Do you see yourself as a captive of Christ, fully subjected to the mercy of the general? Or do you see yourself as someone who is deserving of sharing the chariot? equal with God in so many ways with your valuable input on the mission and therefore also receiving some of the praise and accolades that go along with victory. Paul's mindset, we're using him as our example this morning, Paul's mindset knew what his Savior's call was and that was right out of Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Kent Hughes says it this way, a vibrant, useful spiritual life is a death march. Isn't this so encouraging? So happy on a nice, sunny, beautiful day. We're all called to die. It's real fun. 
But a vibrant, here's the word, useful spiritual life is a death march in which the marcher repeatedly dies. But see, God is revealing himself through our death. And this is what Paul was saying gave him great freedom from his fears and his concerns and his anxieties. So we'll have to get to this. Figure out why was he applying this? Why did him being a captive in Jesus parade mean so much to him? Let me encourage you because you have people around you. You have family that you're having your barbecues with these days. You have people that you're working with. You have all sorts of different people that that the Lord has uniquely positioned you to reach and to have influence on, not just to inspire them, but, but to communicate the gospel that has radically transformed your life. And the thinking of the world is bent towards independence and individuality. They're being preached to, to all the time through every media outlet. Be you, do you, live for you. Nothing new. It's what it's always been from the garden forward. When you and I show true surrender to one who has greater authority than us, it will be strangely intriguing to those looking in on your life because you're starting to experience greater peace. You see, there's a lot of stress on in, in a worldly sense that comes with being the general, being the one who calls the shots. Jesus even demonstrated the stress of being the one to sacrifice for us by sweating great drops of blood. And you and I get to say, that's not my job. I don't have to do that for me because there is one who has. And all of a sudden, like this peace that washes over us, we start to walk new in a confidence that people start scratching their heads going, I don't get it. All my me stuff isn't working for me. You say that you're surrendering to the authority of one who's conquered you. And for some reason, it's giving you great peace. So Paul says that we can join Jesus parade. It's his parade that we're joining, but we're joining it as prisoners, as captives in his victory. Secondly, and this is going to sound a little weird, might smell a little off, but we can smell like Jesus. Second Corinthians, we're going forward here in chapter two. We pick up halfway through verse 14. It says, and, the, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul's overwhelming suffering, the stuff that he's already communicated to us in chapter one that says, I was beaten down by it. We thought we were, our lives were over. That overwhelming suffering also has produced an overwhelming, dare I say, pungent odor of grace that Jesus has rescued him from the worst turmoils that any of us could ever expect to experience. And even if he succumbed to any kind of death that was uh, upon his flesh, that Jesus would have saved him for all eternity. And, and one of the roles, this is how we know for sure that Paul is seeing himself as a prisoner in the parade. One of the roles of the prisoners is they'd carry around the incense and they would waft it through the air. So that the citizens would smell it and the smell of victory that would support and enhance the victory of the general would go through all the place and even more humiliating for that prisoner to make people smell that. Because it's also the smell of their own defeat. And so it was a humiliating process for the prisoners to have to do that as the parade marched on. Paul is saying this is the scent that we get to push out into the crowd. 
that we get to allow it to permeate those around us. He says in verse 15 that we are the aroma of Christ to God. We know from all sorts of supporting scripture that the smell that God wants to smell is the sacrifice of his only son. The life of his perfect son was the only thing that was pleasing to him. So Paul says we get to be that. As we die, as we, as we, as we burn in our lives like incense before him, Christ is the one that comes through and it's pleasing to the Lord's nostrils, but it also goes out to the crowd. He says it's, it's, it's a scent. It's a powerful odor among those in verse 15, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. They're all going to smell it. They, they can't hide from it. If it's, if it's wafting and permeating the air and stuff, everyone's going to smell this, but, but they have a choice. To one, it's going to be a fragrance from death to death. If they choose to reject that, I don't want to smell the victory of that conquering general. I want my own parade. I don't need to smell this. This isn't what I signed up for. I want to be the one in the chariot. Or to the other, a fragrance from life to life. This is the only victory I need to smell. I, I want to promote the general who is deserving of the praise that they would receive that smell to life. And you are being here. You are here because you have smelled the scent of the sacrifice of Jesus. And you said, I need that life. Some of you are, have been, been smelling that aroma and that fragrance for years and years. And every once in a while it catches you new and you just have new praise for the Lord and you'll be like, wow, I can't believe that I was chosen for this. And it, and it gives you praise and you're, you're, you're humble before it. Some of you are new to it and you're like, I don't know what I'm smelling. I'm just smelling something. And it said to show up and learn more about him. And I'm starting that process. And some of you have been down this road before you gave up a little bit. You're coming back and you're saying, I need to smell that again. I got out there and smelled what was going on in the world and it was terrible. I need to smell the sacrifice of Jesus in my nostrils again. I want to be the one that's, that's helping permeate that scent into the crowds. We can smell like our Savior. We can smell like the conquering general. Paul also, by his demonstration, teaches us that we can hide in Christ. We pick up partway through verse 16. He asks, a very simple, straightforward question. Who is sufficient for these things? It's almost like you can hear Paul being just his mind blown with who can really hold this stuff up? I mean, you imagine this amazing illustration. These people get to hear. They've been seeing these parades all along and Paul just blows their mind with the use of this military parade and this conquering victory and the fact that he's saying, and I'm one of those prisoners, even though you're trying to say I should be greater. I'm not that, I'm that guy. And their minds are blown. And he says, who's sufficient for this? This is all of the Lord. Who's really competent to do this? Who's able to do this? Verse 17, he says, for we're not like so many peddlers, hucksters, adulterators of God's word. He's giving their, their image there a little bit like people would sell wine in those days and they'd dilute it with water. Or they would change the weight of the bottles or the, the containers so people thought they were getting more than what they were getting. He goes, this is not who we are. Instead, we're something different. You can hear what I'm about to say as truth because, he says, but as men of sincerity, Pastor Ben covered this a couple weeks ago, clarity, purity. 
But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul answers his own question. He says, who's sufficient for any of this? He's already said he's not strong enough to do it. He's going to say in chapter three that our sufficiency is in God and in God alone. But he says, even if we mighty apostles, even if we great leaders that the church in Corinth wanted to applaud and just say, they're going to dress better. They're going to speak better. They're going to look better. They're going to smell better. All these things, even though you want us to be greater than we intend to be, because it's not about us. Any sufficiency we have is because we are completely hidden in Christ. Because everything we do, we were signed up by Christ. We were commissioned by him. We stand before him. He's our audience. We're in the sight of God and we speak what he has told us to say. So yeah, there is some sufficiency that we apostles have, he's saying, but it's not ours. It's only in Christ. Hughes continues, we've used his quote before. He says, the way to live is to understand that weakness, suffering, and death are the means by which the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ wafts to the ends of the earth, and then to be like Paul and to not fight it, but embrace it. See, here is the key. Paul is saying, I was freaking out because I couldn't find my brother. I didn't know if the church was cool with what I had to say. I didn't know if we were back on mission or if we had more work to do. Paul had legitimate reasons. You and I have some very legitimate reasons of things that want to keep us up at night. There are some real problems that we're dealing with. This text is not to minimize the problems that we face and say, what are you so worried about? This is no big deal. It's a very big deal to us. Jesus understands it because he walked in human flesh. He knows what it's like to face fear. He knows what it's like to face the uncertainty of things. They're very real. But Paul's answer to this was to find his peace and his contentment in surrender. To say, this isn't my victory to win. This isn't my situation to manipulate. It isn't my, my, my challenge to control. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can men do to me. The fact that we're always tempted to worry should humble us. The true nature of the gospel isn't that we would get over our stuff this side of heaven, but that we would acknowledge how broken we are and that there is a savior worthy of our praise and sufficient to provide for our need. This is what's going to lead us to improve on our practice over time, but we'll never be rid of our need for him. There isn't some nirvana thing that we're going to achieve where all of a sudden we're totally Zen. You guys recognizing all these terms from today? To where we're just supposed to be so chill and at peace all the time. There are going to be things that are going to make us freak out a little bit. And then it causes us to rely on the sufficiency of our Savior, not on ourselves. Your notes have several things to do. Some some articles to read, some verses to review, some videos to see. There's some good helpful suggestions there. But really all you can offer to do is to become a student of the journey. To recognize that the work is still ahead of you. That we have so much more we need to do in order to become true students of how we offer this to the Lord. We have to practice walking as prisoners because it does not come naturally. What comes naturally because we've grown up in sin is that we want to ride the chariot. Get out of my way, Lord. That's my ride. That's what comes naturally. 
We may not fully defeat the grip of worry in our lives, but since the cross defeated the power of sin, we can choose to surrender to a greater authority, the Lord Jesus. He is the mighty one who provides for our every need. I ask you to stand if you would, please. Let's close our time in prayer. Let's, let's, let's pray with Paul's question. Who's sufficient for these things? Certainly not you or me. Lord God, we want to thank you, Lord, for holding a mirror up to us in your word. As James says, Lord, that your scripture is like uh, that glass that we can hold up and see if we look at all in shambles or if we look straightened out. But it's our responsibility to not just walk away from the image we see. To not endeavor to do something about it. And so, Lord, your spirit has called many people in unique ways in this room today to apply the scriptures that they've heard. So I pray that you give them your grace. I pray that you would continue to hold the high standard of your holiness above them, that we would always be striving to attain it. But knowing, Lord, that in our very core you needed to rescue us, that the only way we could attain is by the power of your spirit. Thank you for these great people, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to enjoy some beautiful summer weather in the great state of Maine. I pray, Lord, that all of this would speak to your praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.